one thing you learn after working kind of indirectly in the oil markets for many years is that nobody really has the answer. I, I, I mentioned that uh, tankers are vividly volatile because uh, you know the market is not efficient. The same goes for oil as well. And one interesting fact that that very few people know is that you know when you look at say the forward curve on Brent, you think that okay, so 2024 Brent is priced at X. Ooh, you know there is probably a lot of analysis behind that number. They really, really know what they're talking about. Well, it's a little bit like the tanker industry. It's like a mean reversion thing, and it's where. Uh, the marginal production, uh, you know, what the marginal production needs in order to make money. And also people think, ooh, you know, there's probably billions of dollars being put on 2024 Brent. Well, it isn't. You know, kind of a, a, a feisty hedge fund with an attitude can manipulate that curve very easily. Lars Barsta has served as CEO of Frontline since September 2021. He has held senior positions in finance and shipping in Norway, UK and Singapore and has a strong knowledge base to understand the global and complex tank and oil market. In this episode, Lars shares his thoughts on finance, the global economy, oil markets, frontline and much more. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies, which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Volname as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Let the episode begin. Welcome back, everyone. I'm very excited to be joined by Lars. And Lars, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. You've been on the on the waitlist for quite some time, and obviously, we are very interested about your journey and also the um, the story of Frontline, of course. But before we head into shipping, can you go down the memory lane a bit? Because I guess it's fair to say that you started in finance and maybe stock picking and found that fascinating. That was maybe your start in finance, finance at least. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Um, you know. I actually have a background then from from the equity markets. Um, I, I graduated with a, with a, um, a bachelor in science um, from from a university here in Oslo, and then kind of I was more inspired by uh, the movie uh, Wall Street and uh, kind of uh, hitting the financial markets. Then then you know not I wasn't really considering shipping too much. And to to be fair, at that time. 
as many times after uh, shipping has kind of been doomed a bit you know it's been looked at as a marginal industry that's just gonna be effectivized and and uh, kind of commoditized and and uh, you know uh, kind of be like boring but um so i started off in the equity markets uh, first as an analyst and then managing uh, a small fund uh, here in oslo um so so that was basically kind of where it started um I had a few friends that were working in the shipping industry, and I remember it was, it was quite funny because during those years, I believe it was Reuters, where it was trying to set up a screen for uh, kind of uh, ship fixing. So basically where, you know, to try and avoid the physical broker in between the cargo owner and the, and the, and the ship owner. Um, so, so actually as early as that, so early 90s, uh, somebody tried to structure this uh, business. Can you just describe the equity markets today versus the time you started? Because I don't want to bring up your age, right? But there is a gap between 90s and today, right? So what has changed? Is it much more information? Things go, is it the standard things or are there something that is really different that you would have been, you had to be there to understand the difference in the equity markets today compared to your time? Well, I believe kind of, um, and I was, I'm not that old, so I don't know how the 80s were, um, but, uh, or at least I wasn't in the equity markets at that time, but I believe kind of every big cycle in, in the stock markets has its uh, kind of theme. And um, so the 80s was uh, kind of roaring, uh, you know, with the leverage and uh, M&A and the uh, it was also where kind of high yield bonds uh, kind of came up into play and all that stuff. Um, but the nineties was uh, was more kind of dominated by the the, the, the rapid change in technology. So uh, this was kind of the, the the where Cisco and Microsoft and um, you know all these companies started to 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 uh, you know evolve. Um, and uh, so that was a really interesting. Kind of uh, time. I think here in Norway, it was typically uh, where you started to see funds uh, invest uh, more and more abroad. So, you know, after being constricted to the Oslo Stock Exchange, uh, they started to look uh, kind of um, uh, across the borders and uh, particularly towards the US. So, so it, it it changed kind of the dynamics in the in the investment uh, kind of environment um, for Norwegians as well. Um, but <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, one of the things and, and uh, that, that was, this was, you know, an, an important kind of thing for me uh, is that, you know, whilst the 80s were dominated by fundamental bottom-up analysis, um, and um, as I mentioned, uh, you know, you had a lot of M&A activity uh, and uh, during kind of those years and a lot of leveraged debt and so forth. In in the nineties, um, and this was what caught my attention a lot. Uh, you suddenly started to to see kind of other uh, ways of of investing. Uh, one of them being uh, kind of the, the usage of technical analysis, which was uh, what caught my eye. And and also the the fund I was working for and the investment bank I was working for at the time had a high focus on uh, technical analysis, using it basically to to try and uh, you know, it's, it's a very efficient way of analyzing uh, a broad area of equities, sectors, markets. And, uh, and th this was, you know, I found really, really interesting. 
How do we separate fundamental research from technical research? Because if you go deep enough or broad enough, maybe it's just the same, right? So how do you separate those two concepts? Well, kind of the, if you are a shortist, to use a fancy word, um, you accept or you, you acknowledge the fact that if you look at price, action, and volume, you actually see the sum of what all the fundamental investors are doing, you know, all the bottom-up analysts are kind of where they're putting their money. And, and if you say you, you put your money where your mouth is, you're actually seeing the sum of a lot of people's opinion about that stock or that market or that sector. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of cheating, uh, you could say. You know, you, you basically try to, to, to quickly um, get, a, get a grip on what a lot of people are, are thinking about certain equity. But in order for it to work, it has to be a very liquid stock. It has to be a lot of investors. And you know, the, the, the kind of the fundamental thing about technical analysis is that you also assume the market is efficient, that information is evenly spread. So you know, if it's a marginal stock on an you know, OTC list in a weird exchange where there are you know, 500 shareholders, there is no way you can apply technical analysis. But for the broader markets, for the big, large cap companies and so forth, um, I, I'd like to argue that, that uh, you know, the price action you see on your screen is a, uh, the sum of people's kind of actions and, and the sum of uh, a lot of people's analysis uh, of that company or that sector. Is it fair to say that the downside or maybe a weak point in going about that way when investing is that if you take, you know, it's so much psychology in the market, right? So maybe if you find the right strategy on technical chart, maybe the psychology or the management, maybe you're missing some pieces that can either ruin your conviction or ruin the, the, the picture you have made in your Excel sheets, or is that... A bad assumption to say. No, no, it, it is, and um, and I I think people listening in has to understand that, you know, where where this kind of movement erupted in the in analyzing the equity markets and, and commodity markets too, this was during the nineties. And during the nineties, one thing you really didn't have was these massive long short hedge funds. You didn't have quantitative models. You didn't have kind of black box trading. You didn't have high frequency trading. And um, so, so there was far less noise in the market. And, and this is why kind of your point is, is, is spot on. Um, there can be so many false uh, kind of signals being com coming into to the shortest's world, basically due to all these machines uh, and also a much larger community of looking at the same patterns. So, you know, we, we kind of, if you're an old school shortist, you're looking for head and shoulders and cup and handle and all these kind of formations. The thing is, right now you have massive computers looking for the same, and they, that will trigger kind of uh, action in the market. So, so uh, yes, it's a very noisy uh, picture. But if you look kind of from, um, you know, if you put the big goggles on and you're drilling kind of top down, um, I think it's still very useful. Makes sense. So I'm asking this question because maybe it is a bridge into shipping, but do you prefer working in Singapore or London because you've done both? And maybe that has something to do with the shipping industry as well. Well, 
<clears throat> I think, well, when I was living in Singapore, it was, it was a fantastic time kind of in my life because I was getting kids and uh, bringing up kids in Singapore is extremely easy. And the, you know, you put on shorts and sandals and that's it basically. Um, but the shipping community in Singapore was really close knit. Um, and it was also kind of very open-minded, meaning that, you know, you'd go to one bar in Bolt Key in, in Singapore called BQ, and there you'd meet all the big owners and all the big charters in one place. So, so, so people got to know each other and it was kind of a very constructive and positive kind of shipping environment. Um, even though uh, people were competitors working for different firms and so forth, um, you know, it, 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 you know it, we were all expats basically. So you were all kind of in that same boat to put it that way. London, it's, uh, you know, that's a massive kind of powerhouse for shipping. So, so um, and also it's, it's far more fragmented um so but but i think singapore is over time that there's a saying that if you stay in singapore beyond five years you're going to stay there for 10 and if you stay beyond 10 you're basically done for and it's uh, some refer to it as a golden handcuffs because it's basically it's so convenient to live there um and very easy living uh but it's also a bit uh, groundhog day for those of you who've seen the movie uh, you know you wake up Every day, it's the same weather, it's the same, you know, it's a small rainstorm, it's the same temperature, you go to the same places, you do the same thing. So it, it does get a bit boring, uh, kind of, at least from a family life perspective, in, in my opinion. So that's uh, kind of where London was far more real life and uh, far more kind of comparable to, to what a normal Norwegian would, would look for. Is it also fair to say that, I don't know today about London, but if we go back a bit, I mean, it's a powerhouse in finance, right, in Europe. So just being in London and understanding how London ticks and moves makes you more capable as a shipping owner or, or as an asset manager or something like that. Absolutely. But, but I, I think also that has changed a little bit. So I moved to London in 2007. Um, and, uh, and I think London now is actually less uh, or has been outcompeted a bit by Geneva. In that respect so you know due to kind of certain tax changes and so forth and this is way ahead of brexit uh, a few of the bigger trading houses and a few of the kind of the bigger charters in the shipping market moved out to geneva and this has then made kind of geneva uh, all you know uh, kind of geneva and london together is is now kind of sharing the throne of of being kind of the shipping places to be so, so, um, but in, in London, you know, you also got the aspects of, of uh, get a feel for the financial markets. And I mentioned I moved there in 2007 and it was, it was quite scary, you know, living there in 2008 um, and into 2009, you know, the, the shipping market wasn't really hit by the financial crisis until about a year after uh, Lehman Brothers went, uh, went belly up. But you could really feel it. I lived that in Wimbledon uh, and, uh, you know, in England, it was very common to have houses to let. So you had like a second home that you just rented out because you had free finance from the banks during the you know the early two thousands. And you could uh, during those days you could walk down the streets and every house was for sale, literally, uh, basically uh, kind of Britons being in a in a financial squeeze. And it was also noticeable that so many people were let go in city that my commute got less crowded. And, and that's uh, kind of when you feel that there is a financial crisis going on. And then obviously it feels 
uh, strange, um, at least during 2008, being in a in a relatively tight uh, tank market, uh, making a lot of money whilst uh, the rest of the world is falling apart. Definitely. So you mentioned the tanker market, and obviously we're going to discuss that a lot in this episode. So what's the best analogy or summary even of, the, of how it is to navigate in the tanker market? Because it's massive if you look at it as data points that matters, right? So how do you summarize working in a tanker industry? Well, well, first of all, uh, people have to, to, to remember that... Um, Tanker markets are mean reverting. You know, it's uh, it's an extremely cyclical industry, and and it it uh, it will eventually move back to a mean, which is somewhere around where you actually get a return on a an investment of a ship, a twenty year investment on a ship, um, and uh, and uh, you know the, the tanker markets will be extremely volatile because you'll have over investment in ships. Uh, or in tonnage and then under investment in tonnage and then you will have the demand moving kind of really crazy from time to time um, but also i think the lack of i mentioned on technical analysis i mentioned efficient markets information being evenly shared in the market you absolutely don't have that in the tanker industry at all um, and and uh, that kind of brings me further to the fact that you actually don't have that in oil markets either when people talk about efficient markets, one tends to look at the, the currency markets. So currencies are, you know, there's so much information kind of roaming around the currency markets. It's extremely liquid. And, and uh, you can basically place any size of bet at any point of time. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so, so that's regarded maybe one of the most efficient markets in the world. Uh, tanker is the total opposite. Um, so, so there's a vast array of information that needs to be kind of analyzed and chewed on. And I, I think just the sheer volatility of the tanker market tells you that nobody really knows what's going to come next. Can we explain why that is a fact? For people may think that why can't we solve this puzzle to understand the equation more fully than obviously it's the case today, right? Well, we have actually started to solve it to some extent, and, and this uh, by the introduction of, you know, just to just to to explain to listeners who's not familiar with shipping. So, every ship in the world has a beacon. You know, it's basically a radio signal that's pulsating and being sent out uh, every minute, every hour of the day, and uh, it's an anti-collision system. It's called an AIS transponder, and every ship over a certain uh, kind of tonnage needs to have it. Uh, you'll even find kind of pressure crafts in the Oslo Fjord, uh, you know, having an AIS transponder, really low tech kind of radio signal thingy. So at some point during uh, mid 2000s, um, low orbiting satellites were able to pick up that signal. Prior to that, you actually, it was only port states and other vessels that picked up this signal. But the minute low orbiting satellites could actually catch that signal, that radio signal, and decipher it, uh, it was like the oceans of the world were lit up with these uh, kind of uh, red dots and green dots and black dots that you now can Google and you'll find them on the internet. And But prior to that happening, nobody really knew where your ship was and nobody really knew what, um, 
current viewership was doing and when it was expected into the Middle East, for instance, or when it was ex expected into the US Gulf. And at that time, the owner had kind of half the puzzle and the charter had the other half of the puzzle. And it was like a kind of, it was, uh, and, and the, you know, obviously the owner could spoof the charter, the charter could spoof the owner. And that, but it was like kind of an evenly, uh, even strength kind of relationship. Once kind of AIS became broadly um, uh, kind of accessible, and uh, we did it when I was working with, uh, with Glencore, we utilized that data uh, quite vividly in the beginning. Uh, actually to the point where we signed an agreement with a Canadian satellite provider just to buy the raw data to try and get ahead of the curve on, on analyzing this data. And suddenly you had an overview of every ship's position in the world. And this has obviously driven the market to become more efficient. The, the challenge for the ship owners is that it hasn't really helped us. You know, it's basically it's given away our information, uh, but we still don't know. Uh, how many cargoes there are uh, you know the demand side have been able to kind of hide their cards better uh, but on the other side of it the analyzing the the, the markets looking at uh, supply and demand in the world refinery margins and so forth has also become more accessible so it means that the owner if he utilizes it can also get a, a, a kind of a, a better feel you know, back, back in the 90s, uh, most of these markets were trading OTCs or over-the-counter. So there wasn't like a Reuters platform you could go to to figure out what uh, the jet crack was out in Asia. Now all this is on Bloomberg or on Reuters. So it means that if an owner does his homework or an analyst does his homework, we've kind of managed to even out the odds to some extent, right? We know what economists kind of work. So, so, so I would say that the market is getting kind of gradually more efficient um but but we're yet not there that's fascinating so if we play out a scenario where you have full transparency through the whole supply chain who has the most to fear or say in another way like who is hiding the cards and thereby can make more money relative to others right maybe it's a hard yeah. question to answer but yeah but, but I, I still think it will be uh kind of uh, at least for now it's the the cargo owners you know, it's a uh, it's the refineries. They know what their schedule is going to be like. Um, <clears throat> you know, they they know kind of what their runs are going to be. Uh, the refineries speak to the oil traders or the oil majors, uh, or they are an oil major. Um, so 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 they and they schedule kind of months ahead. You know, kind of a refiner today will plan for probably start to plan for winter demand uh, 2022. So 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 they will kind of know. Uh, but kind of where the owners kind of might be able to fight back is on pure S&D in the tax market. You know, if there is a limited amount of taxes in the world, you know, uh, kind of knowing the taxes and working together with the taxes will actually start to mean something. We're not yet there, but, but, uh, but that was actually the case, you know, during kind of the, the most extreme bull runs in tankers. It was actually... For a charter, it was really important to be good friends with an owner and to have a long-lasting relationship with an owner, because otherwise the owner just wouldn't offer. And I, I think it's well, it's, it's like a wet dream of any owner. But but you know, you now have almost a whole generation in the chartering part of it. You know, the, the guys booking ships, 
that never really been to you know working in a tight market. They don't know about kind of how important these relationships can be. So, so hopefully they're going to have a kind of a crude awakening once um, <laughs> once this market tightens up. Definitely. So, if you were to simplify this navigating the tanker market and the oil market maybe it's easier to first quickly explain the supply side because obviously that's easier if you look at the other books and then take demand afterwards because maybe when people are listening we talk a lot about what can happen and the news flow but usually that goes in the demand bucket right i mean the order book etc we have we don't need to use that much energy to figure that out at least in in a pretty confident way right no, no. the 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 um, the supply side on the tanker side is is pretty much uh, done. You know, it's, it's done and dusted. Um, there, you know, transparency has has also evolved over the years. You know, people don't hide their order books to the same extent they did before. And also, you know, during two uh, thousands, we had an enormous amount of uh, yards, so called greenfields, popping up left, right, and center on the globe. So obviously very difficult to maneuver and knowing how much is actually in order and so forth. That has changed because because of post 2008, 2009, uh, you know, all these yards were closed down and, and now you're back to kind of, uh, for the tanker side, uh, a big handful of yards that can actually build uh, a modern tanker. And and uh, what they have on order is is more or less transparent. You know, it's, it's worked out and, and also their capacity to build. Is more or less known. So, so, so the order book you, you have a good hand on, and and the order book right now is, you know, we talk about these big cycles. Um, the order book now is so. So, if you rewind to when I entered the tanker market, which was in two thousand two, two thousand three, um, and I moved to Asia pretty quickly. Uh, at that time. You know, the tanker market was about half the size it is now in deadweight tons. So the carrying capacity of the tanker market was about half the size it is now. Uh, but the order book is, was actually bigger than it is now. So now, kind of uh, forward wine uh, 20 years almost, uh, or just about 20 years, um, the tanker market, the overall carrying capacity of the tanker market is double. Well, it was in 2002, 2003, but the order book is in deadweight terms exactly the same. And this is really, uh, is, is almost scary considering the fact that 20 years ago, um, you know, we went through a cycle where single hulls were kind of more and more difficult to trade and uh, more and more charters and the ports and the terminals and whatnot uh, demanded a double hull vessel. This came kind of, uh, well, first it was probably started with Exxon Valdez uh, accident, but then you had a big accident in Korea as well, uh, where a ship basically broke, uh, well, there was a hole in a ship and, and the kind of the, this, this double hull thing came into the play. So basically during the 2000s, partly due to the single hull, double hull um, trend to call it that, and secondly, uh, due to the growth uh, of uh, Chinese demand, there was a vast amount of vessels being built. And as I mentioned, the order book in absolute deadweight terms is now lower than it was during those years. And all these vessels are coming up to 20 years of age. And I think uh, I'll spend a little bit of time on this 20-year thing because, uh, you know, I can say it until I'm blue in the face, but, but investors don't really get it, right? 
And then you have kind of uh, Harbjorn with NAT will tell it, you know, a tanker can trade till it's 25 to 30, blah, blah, blah. You know, it can, you know, but the charters don't want it. And this has to do with the simple fact that, you know, for a charter, for an oil major, you know, one of the things that he's most scared of is an oil spill. You know, whether if he has to pay, you know, $100,000 more or $500,000 more on freight, that accounts to extremely little for the risk of having a massive spill. You know, the cost to an oil major, say, to have like an Exxon Valdez bill, um, you know, is, is enormous. Not, you know, they're insured and all that stuff, but, but just kind of, uh, you know, you, you lose, you know, you lose your, your company uh, kind of reputation. And that goes for Equinor and Total and Shell and all of them. So, and these guys have really rigid uh, betting departments who are not charters. And, you know, and th there is a reason why, you know, a betting department guy, he's supposed to be an engineer. And he's literally being an auditor, internal auditor, to make sure that the kits the guys rent in are of the best quality possible. And a tanker is not a rigid structure. You know, it's a, it's a steel, but it bends. You know, it has to bend, otherwise it will break uh, during waves and so forth, or uh, going through rough seas. And when something built of steel is bent for 20 years, the probability for it breaking starts to increase exponentially. So this means that, you know, if you have a ship that's more than 20 years old, you have a very limited amount of clients uh, and you can't really trade that ship very efficiently. Um, so it means that, and this is also the reason why the average scrapping age in the tanker industry is just a year, year and a half north of 20 years. That's when the ships leave the industry. So now we're getting into both this generation of ships that were built early 2000s that are reaching this 20 year gap uh, or threshold. Um, and we are actually in the market where oil demand is expected to grow. It's actually expected to grow uh, incrementally due to us coming out of a pandemic. And then you have this thing that the order book is actually lower than it was back in 2000s and the market is much larger. One interesting thing to, 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 put, you know, to put that in context is that back in early 2000, the global kind of oil demand was hovering north of 85 million barrels per day or around 85 million barrels per day. Now, by the end of the year, we're about to reach 102 million barrels per day. And the oil transported on water, which is about 40%, of uh, global oil demand, um, that has doubled in the same period. And the size of the market has doubled, but the order book is, you know, if you, if you compare it, it's, it's half of what it should be in theory. Is it like, uh, I mean, there's probably many reasons for this happening right now, but is it sort of like the perfect storm of people thinking it's peak oil, they need to calculate 20 years ahead and to make the investments, it needs to make sense in 20 years. And also if you add on uh, uncertainty on technology as well and regulations, it's just like the perfect storm for people who, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's an age thing, right? So if you're 50 years old, it, you kind of need to have, is, it, is the new generation as keen as the previous to become great at tankers? Because there's also a reputation on a person to just be in the oil industry. 
we have to be honest about that as well. If you take the broad lenses, right? So is it just many factors at the same time creating this scenario? Yeah, uh, I, I think it is. It's, uh, you know, every cycle has its theme, right? And, you know, when we saw the, let's take the, the probably the last cycle where where we saw kind of all the tanker fleet and, and also the dry bulk fleet, to be fair, was completely overbuilt. You know, the, it was uh, too many orders being placed. That was when private equity or, or family offices, but, you know, hedge funds and private equity dominated uh, the source of finance into the tanker industry. You know, you were coming through a cycle that lasted from, say, 2003 until 2009, seven years almost, uh, where ship owners, traditional ship owners, were making insane returns. And then, you know, kind of not that uh, typical investors in shipping, uh, you know, looking into the Bloomberg terminal and seeing, well, you know, if I can get that kind of return, I'm, I'm going to put in a billion dollars too, right? And, and we saw, you know, almost like spe specialized hedge funds set up to finance this. Prior to that, actually, if you go back to the 80s, uh, you had the, the structure of uh, KGs, you know, where we, which was basically just a tax vehicle because governments offered uh, tax relief for uh, investment in shipping. And, and this is where, you know, you have the dentists, dentists of Germany became the biggest uh, ship owners in the world. So it's, you know, you go through the cycles where sourcing of capital uh, is maybe the only limitation to, 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 to the tanker industry. And, and mind you, a tanker owner typically is very willing to take risk. Um, so if somebody gives him money, he will uh, apply it in the market. At least historically, so but but I think you have a point that yes, this you know the big owners, the big swinging guys that, that really ran the bat, um, they're obviously getting older. It's it's almost like a generation of them uh, who 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 are you know reaching retirement. Um, but I think there's also another one is you know if if you go to university today. Are you really looking to go into shipping to an in, you know, according to taxonomy, we're a non-sustainable industry. We're actually going to be extinct, right? And if you look at the regulatory <coughs> kind of framework surrounding shipping, it's becoming far more, you know, more and more complicated to maneuver in. Also, due to, to uh, and, and for all the right reasons that we're all going to be more and more environmental coaches, um, you know, funds and a lot of money are being challenged to something that's greener and that that is sustainable. So, you know, tank, you know, transportation of hydrocarbons is not really sustainable. Looking at kind of uh, where we are hoping to end up in in thirty years time. Um, so, so I, I think you have kind of a, a sum of all that. But um, <clears throat> then again. I think that once the returns kind of come, you know, once the money is there, uh, I, I, I think kind of this is going to slip. There's one thing that I, I tend to discuss uh, sometimes with uh, with American investors, and um, we call it the the Philip Morris uh, kind of uh, case. So Philip Morris were in the '90s. You know, that was when people started to sue Philip Morris for uh, kind of lung cancer and whatnot. Uh, and uh, I feel like Morris became kind of one of the really, really dark sheep on, on Wall Street. But, and, and people, you know, they became uninvestable. 
basically due to them being the single cause, biggest cause of cancer. Um, uh, and oh, they're probably going to sue me now. But, but, <laughs> this was the narrative. Say, anyway. This was yeah. the narrative, right? Yes, that was a narrative, yes. Um, but if you look at the best investment you could have done on Wall Street uh, by a mile for the last 10, 15 years, it's Philip Morris. So, so kind of when the money is there, when uh, the yield is there, when the performance is there, and um, uh, you know the dividends are there, people tend to forget. Uh, or there are kind of pools of money that are not constricted by by kind of the green shimmer. To put it that way. I'm stealing your quote right now, but I hope it's okay because you had a, a great quote yesterday when we when we were talking about the fact or the idea that you need to go green by black numbers. Maybe it's a great example just to put on the environmental piece as well, right? Because a lot of smart people are obviously trying to solve this sustainable puzzle and it impacts everyone, right? Trying to run a business. Mm. Well, it's uh, hard to arrest you there because otherwise I'm going to get sued by Beloma, the Norwegian uh, environmental kind of organization. But it's actually their founder, uh, Fredrik Hauge, who's uh, who's uh, kind of he's probably going to beat me up now. But uh, but he's he's got a more conservative approach towards uh, how to change uh, things going forward, and he's the one who, who who has this quote: "Go go green by black numbers." Basically, that you know where you invest your money and where government subsidizes and where government actually uh, puts their, their bet on how we're going to solve the climate crisis has to be, you know, at least there has to be some shimmer of sensibility there. You know, it, it has to be based on facts. It has to be, and, and, and you can't really force, you know, uh, irrespective of how many billions and trillions of dollars you stuff down the throat of Kind of various ideas and thoughts and and whatnot, uh, you know, what's in the end going to solve it is that there are economics in green industry, you know, kind of in in, in reducing um, uh, our, our GHG uh, kind of emissions. So so you know that's that's the kind of long term uh, solution, and and some sometimes it looks like uh, people. Kind of lose sight of that they don't understand that that we're, we're not you know we're living in a society where it actually has to make sense in the end uh yeah i'm trying to get us over to the demand side of the equation and it would be great to just hear your reflection on where do you need to look in order to understand enough right so i mean you have the pareto principle that 20 percent gives 80 percent of the results right so maybe it's the same dynamic in in the demand side but just one story which i find fascinating is that if you just expect that people in india and africa and china etc asia wants to get to middle class you expect them to use energy right People need to burn food, they need to heat up their houses, etc. So if you're just talking about math and facts, don't you have like a gigantic demand side regardless if you forecast ahead to some sense? Uh, absolutely. And, and there's, there's uh, you know, I, I would um, encourage listeners to, to go into Google. And I think the website is called Mercator Earth or something like that. I think, but it's basically it's looking at global maps based on where, where basically the 
the size of the continents are made up of a uh, number of people, number of cars, uh, number of uh, middle-class people and so forth. And then you'll see how unevenly distributed kind of wealth is in the world. Uh, and, you know, there was an, uh, a person I had a discussion kind of over Christmas where there was one who made me aware of, uh, of an interesting fact, uh, you know, kind of overpopulation is actually one of the biggest challenges we have um, and is very difficult to deal with, of course. Um, and uh, but uh, overpopulation becomes less of a problem if more of the world population reaches middle class, because then you automatically get fewer children, or at least statistically. So, so world growth will, uh, or population growth, which is a huge issue for us, will actually start to 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 um, kind of ease uh, the more people we can put kind of up the the uh, the standard of living chain. And um, you know, I've seen kind of various analysis, and uh, McKinsey has a, an extensive analysis on this. And they expect over the next, uh, I can't remember if it is uh, the next 20 years or 30 years, um, probably 30 years, probably towards 2050, that we have 1.4 billion people in the world, which predominantly lives in China and India, which are expected to reach middle class. And this is not middle class in Norway, where basically we're all middle class. Uh, you know, kind of that's the floor. But uh, this is like a global kind of middle class where probably the income is around twenty thousand dollars a year or something like that. But but it's um, and and you know even though they're not all going to drive cars, they're going to use products that are made of oil. You know where oil is one of the the um, and we don't have a replacement for it yet. So so maybe we can build, you know, do some bio-organic uh, stuff that can make your fleece, you know, for sure. But uh, it will demand energy. Do we have the energy? You know, it's, it's, it's all these kind of questions. And and so so I, I, I'm, you know, with regards to oil demand on the, with the long goggles on, yes, hopefully we're going to plateau at some point. And, and it's very likely we're going to plateau at some point because alternative energy is going to dig into kind of uh, the, the oil and the hydrocarbon part of it. But we're going to plateau. We're not going to fall off a cliff. So, and if that's at 130 million barrels per day, 110, 120, I don't know. But in the meantime, very few tankers are being built. And this still needs to be transported. And, and that's one thing, you know, when we have a coffee table discussion here in my household. There are three kids who are in the prime kind of uh, green shimmer age. And they discuss it at school and all that stuff. And sustainability is, is uh, you know, is a normal word being used in the sentences. You know, one thing that can actually, which is an argument that people tend to forget, in tankers, we actually transport an enormous amount of energy really efficiently and distributed around the, uh, the globe. So, so it's, uh, you know, if you were to put that oil that, you know, say, uh, a VLCC can carry into trucks, you know, you would need probably a thousand trucks and they would emit, uh, you know, a hundred times more. So it's, it's, um, this is, a, you know, tankers, although we don't like it, you know, it's uh, kind of transporting really heavy crude on the oceans, which are really vulnerable um, and all that. It's, it's, a, it's still a very efficient way of distributing energy. And since not all continents in the world are blessed with oil, 
um, you know, that's the best way to, to, to deal with this. Definitely. So recently you joined Twitter and you're a great ad for people who want to understand how frontline and you think about the market. But uh, what I love about your Twitter is that you're very quick to sort of, if you see an argument that doesn't make sense, you make it clear that you're, you're not, you don't agree on that argument. So maybe that's a good framework to just answer the question, what do you think is the biggest misunderstanding that you see a lot of people with influence are telling us about the oil and gas market and shipping even? Well, you know, it's, I think I'll, I'll start at another point. Um, one thing you learn after working kind of indirectly in the oil markets for many years is that nobody really has the answer. I, I, I mentioned that uh, tankers are vividly volatile because, uh, you know, the market is not efficient. The same goes for oil as well. And one interesting fact that, that very few people know is that, you know, when you look at, say, the forward curve on Brent, you think that, okay, so 2024 Brent is priced at X. Ooh, you know, there is probably a lot of analysis behind that number. They really, really know what they're talking about. Well, it's a little bit like the tanker industry. It's like a mean reversion thing. And it's where... Uh, the marginal production, uh, you know, what in the marginal production needs in order to make money. And also people think, oh, you know, there's probably billions of dollars being put on 2024 rent. Well, it isn't, you know, kind of a, a, a feisty hedge fund with an attitude can manipulate that curve very easily. So, so, so it's not like the currency markets where you would be blown out of the water trying to, to, to move it kind of outside of, of, uh, of where it should be. But the tank, sorry, the oil oil market, you can actually do that. And then you have also the simple fact that so we trade Brent. You know, Brent is the biggest oil contract in the world, and um, it's actually not more than about seven hundred thousand barrels per day of Brent quality oil. And put that against a hundred, close to hundred million barrels per day of consumption, you know, that little physical or relatively small physical contract prices you know, the global uh, commodity market. So not saying that that's kind of open for manipulation because there's a lot of liquidity in the front end of, of the brand curve. But, you know, people just have to understand that, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not messiahs. It's, it's not like uh, written in stone, uh, whatever the oil analyst uh, kind of uh, uh, figure out. And, so, so obviously this is the demand side for tankers, right? And it's, um, it's what uh, tanker owners need to try and focus on because that's, you know, what happens in the oil side on the curve and also on oil refining margins and so forth are, are at the end of the day, end of the day going to tell us something about where uh, freight demand is going to end up. Um, and the most single most important part of that picture is where are we on in the inventory cycle. So is the world kind of full of oil or is it marginally tight or is it about to get empty? Uh, to understand inventories, one has to, you know, roll back all the way to the chart I mentioned where you see the, the world a bit on population and so forth. It, it's quite interesting to see that if you look at the most populous countries in the world with the highest demand of oil, they have the least production. That has changed to some extent in the US, but in Asia, it's, it's uh, you know, if you do those two together, you'll find that, uh, you know, 
demand-wise, China, for instance, is a massive blob. It's one of the biggest countries in the world, you know, of when it looks like it look when you look at oil consumption, right? And but on production, they're they're very small. And these countries that are uh, kind of inherently short oil need to have a lot of inventories for security purposes. Um, and whilst the production uh, uh, countries, they don't need that inventory because they have oil pipping up uh, from the ground already, you know, every day anyway. So, so they're, they're not too, too worried. And it's that dynamics when, you know, in addition to say baseline demand, these oil short countries need to refill their in inventories. That's where you get a, a very interesting dynamic in the tank market. Because that's when you start to see larger volumes than is than, than you would normally expect in baseline demand move between between continents. Um, and that is kind of one of the big themes we've had lately. You know, during the pandemic, we saw the biggest drop in global oil demand at the shortest time ever seen ever. Kind of, it's, it's, this has never happened before. This is like a true black swan, right? You know, you have a global pandemic. You know, it started to to kind of hit uh, the Western world in March uh, 2020, uh, and and uh, you know that was when lockdown started to come and so forth. And suddenly, like off a cliff, oil demand uh, just totally vanished. Um, and that during a time where production was was normally and, and relatively high. It was actually, you know, um, incrementally high because we're just coming out of a price war between between uh, Saudi and Russia. And that was when inventories started to build, right? The thing is that this inventories, you know, all the big um, agencies report on inventories. So EIA does, IEA does, OPEC does, you know, kind of, there are probably 3,000 uh, analysts in the world which main job is to figure out what is the global inventories like. But the only live information we have on inventories is coming from the US. And then Europe is more or less live, say monthly, uh, more or less accurate. A lot of inventories in Europe is actually held in so-called commercial inventories. So it's uh, the government basically uh, telling a refinery to hell, hold so much of, of, uh, of oil in tank at any point in time. And then the rest of the world is is almost dark. You know, it's, it's, it's like you don't know where they are in the cycle, and in particular, so uh, China. So uh, it's so this inventory thing, uh, and, and this is really important to the tankies because if you can take from inventories, which is nearby the demand, uh, is always nearby the demand uh, for logical reasons, then that hits the the need for transportation severely, right? When that stops, kind of when you start to take the marginal barrel not from inventories, but you actually take it, uh, you know, from a ship that's sailed, you know, on the seas, it has a huge impact. Um, and it's just like so. Imagine if you come from a, a one million barrel per day draw environment and move into a one million barrel uh, build environment. The delta is actually two million barrels per day. In order to transport two million barrels per day, you need sixty VLCCs, kind of give or take. So, so, so this has huge implications for the tanker market. Um, you know, I came out in 2021. I was pretty constructive, uh, kind of in 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 uh, frontline's quarterly presentations and so forth, and saying that you know, 
kind of from the data we see, we're going to move from a draw environment into a build environment in August 21. And if you go back to EIA, IAA, and all these guys, what they report at that time, that was correct. That was kind of what the analysis told us. Well, that hasn't happened. That's delayed. You know, we basically, I think the, the, if, if there's a theme for, for all these um, kind of big analysts, um, it's misjudging when inventories are finished drawing. Because again, you know, half of the picture, you don't know. So, so and I, I, you know, that, that's like a rude awakening, which, which I had maybe some years back, uh, but, but basically knowing that these truths are actually not truths, you know, kind of EIA, for instance, which is probably one of the most well-renowned kind of analyst bureaus out there, uh, you know, they're, they're advising governments and the UN and whatnot. Even these guys have really, don't really have a full grasp of what's going on, they think. And then so do so do we, of course. So so so, but uh, I, I realize I went out on a whim now. But getting back to my point is that this is the single more one of the single most uh, kind of important things for for the tanker industry. Firstly, demand kind of coming back, which we apparently already have. You know, we you know we apparently we were demand was north of 100 million barrels in December. You're down to 99 or something now. Um, and then where are we in the inventory cycle? Where is where, where is the marginal barrel or, or is the marginal barrel now coming on water? And uh, I mentioned earlier that 40% of, of uh, oil is in general uh, regarded as waterborne. So if global demand is 100 million barrels per day, 40 million barrels per day will be transferred on water. Well, the funny thing is that if you stop drawing from inventories and you start to use tankers to, to, to supply the crude, it has an exponential effect because on our market, which is then say 40 million barrels, 2 million barrels is 5% increase in demand overnight, right? So it's not 2% of the total, it's 5% of the, kind of the, 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 the barrels that actually do uh, get transported on sea. So, so, um, so this is kind of one of the big things that, that we as ship owners look at, uh, investors should try and follow. And then you have, you know, as I'm on the theme, there's another big, big one as well. And, and this has, you know, this is ton miles. If you rewind back to 2011, 2012, um, and actually DHT was founded basically on this principle. This was when U.S. production really started to, to, to come about, you know, fracking, the fracking revolution. And everybody looked at the U.S. as a major importer. And everybody then kind of, uh, you know, called it the doom of the tanker industry because suddenly this long voyage from the Middle East to U.S. was going to disappear. And uh, because U.S. demand was a big driver in the tanker industry. Well... Uh, what DHT did, and, and uh, probably a lot of people as well, but, but specifically DHT, was they did a thorough analysis of this. They even engaged Edista Energy to do a case study. What is going to happen to all oil flows you know, when U.S. stops being an importer? And it's, the oil market is, is like um, a tube of toothpaste, right? 
So, you know, if you, if there is, you know, if, if, if there is one hole, hole there and you, you basically stuff it, then suddenly the, the toothpaste comes out another place. So basically, you know, the, the fact that U.S. stopped importing displaced a lot of oil and it opened up other trade routes. So, for instance, West Africa to Philadelphia, which was a major trade route, became West Africa to China. So you recouped a lot of the tunnels that were lost on the Western runs. And suddenly, you know, Mexico to U.S. Gulf East, but Mexico to Europe and to Asia increased. Brazil suddenly didn't feed into the U.S. refineries. It fed into China. So you actually had ton miles changing to the positive for something that was expected to be a doom to the industry, right? And I think we're, you know, this created a very tight market where the fundamentals actually told us it wouldn't be. It was basically ton miles increasing more than expected. And, and voyage days for tankers moved from an average, say, of 52, 55 days to 60 days almost, which is a huge change. Um, you know, to, to, you know so, so basically what's going to happen now? Then? You know, now we are in a situation where OPEC has cut. So OPEC has cut a, a lot of production. Um, we, OPEC introducing barrels, particularly in the Middle East, doesn't help tunnels because it's a relatively short distance from where the big demand change is happening, which is in Asia. Uh, and so, so basically the introduction of OPEC barrels that we've seen recently um, has, yes, it's created some utilization, increased utilization, but it's not kind of giving us the full uh, benefit, basically because it's a relatively short distance. But what about the next step? You know, when kind of more and more oil is introduced. So we're still, you know, kind of OPEC still has about 3 million barrels left to give, uh, assuming they, they, they put uh, 400,000 barrels back in the market in, in February, which is uh, expected, sorry, in March, which is expected. And, and uh, the, um, we are having production issues in West Africa. We're having production issues uh, in Libya. Um, Brazil is working, but US is basically where US is at the end of the day the swing producer we have. So, so basically, when when we're back to not drawing on inventories and we need to build inventories, uh, Middle East is back on, which is not far off already. That's when we're going to see the marginal barrels being pulled from the Atlantic Basin, and that's when we kind of going to get back to the dynamics that we had pre-pandemic. I realize I now did the whole spiel <laughs> in one monologue. It's amazing. <laughs> I hope you have some, mean, questions. No, hope you have some questions left. Yeah, yeah, this is amazing because it's also, I mean, just a couple of reflections, right? I, I think maybe this answer is the reason why people love the tanker market, right? Because you need to have all these ideas and thoughts in your head at the same time, right? If you run a software company, you don't have to have all these thoughts in your head at all times, right? So, but I wanted to maybe the next piece I would love to add on because I had one theme left, which is the frontline story, right? Because we have many listeners abroad who maybe don't understand the significance of, of course, 
of course, this is a story of Jon Fredriksen, but it's also a story about how Frontline has catapulted a great, you know, um, umbrella to all these industries or companies under, right? But if before we answer that question, maybe just do you want to say something about consolidation? Since everyone in the industry expects consolidations, or is it just a touchy subject to mention? No, it's, it's not a touchy sub subject, but I, I you know, I, I get that uh, question every kind of uh, time I, I address the market uh, one way or another, whether if it's a quarterly presentation or, or an investor <coughs> presentation. And it's, um, you know, consolidation, yes, uh, we, sh we should have that. But uh, consolidation is difficult. Um, you know, for us to grow as an owner and... We, I think investors need to know that, that we're, we're almost religious, not placing orders anymore. You know, it's, it's, we don't want to add to the burden in this market. Um, we, we, we have kind of our idea of uh, where, where the market will find this balance. And it's, uh, it's at least for the last seven, eight years, maybe more actually, 15 years, we haven't really placed any new orders in the market. Uh, so then... Our, you know, when we think of consolidation, it's more acquisition. You know, either acquisition ships that are already contracted, or acquisition company or acquire companies um, that own ships. Well, we we are acquiring ships that uh, are ordered by others, and and uh, we've, we've done so the last year. We we, we acquired six uh, resales, as they call. We also acquired two VLCCs from from another owner um, that was, that were on the water. But when it comes to acquiring companies, you know, I think if, if uh, when you ask um, the kind of consolidation question, you, you, you should uh, think about the industry we're in. You know, how many owners are there are, or stock listed owners that are priced reasonably, you know, well below NAV and so forth. And, and it will make sense for uh, Frontline, who normally trades above NAV, to, to use our currency to acquire these companies, or one of them at least. Um, it's, it's really hard to, to do um, this in the shipping market. And basically due to the fact that uh, you know, most of these companies have dominant owners that actually want to be ship owners themselves. So they, they, they don't really, they're not really open for an acquisition. They might be open for a collaboration, but they're also fierce uh, kind of negotiators and, and have kind of ambitions on, on the value of their stock and so forth. So, so this is not like, you know, first of all, you don't have a vast array of stock listed entities that you can go after. Secondly, the ones you have that are of the quality where you, you, you might want to do something, uh, they have uh, kind of shareholder structures or uh, dominant owners that are not interested at all. So, so it's it's kind of easier said than done, uh, but you know there there are certain ways uh, tanker uh, the tanker market can consolidate, and one of them is by by forming kind of greater commercial units uh, by way of uh, pools, for instance, and there there's a lot happening, and and uh, I think this is going to be an increasingly uh, kind of uh, theme. For, for the tanking industry going forward. And this has to do with the regulatory framework we're facing. So, you know, we're a fairly big owner and, and we have the capabilities of uh, both coping with the planning, the reporting, the, uh, you know, kind of uh, optimizing with regards to, to dealing with our emissions uh, going towards 2050 to follow the IMO and 
and uh, and uh, you know kind of basically uh, uh, keep our our investors uh, content from an ESG perspective and so forth. But there are many kind of marginal smaller owners that don't have these capabilities, and then it makes far more sense to join the pool that uh, where you come to to a set table where where basically everything is taken care of. You know, if you are you know, to, to, to use a bad uh, kind of uh, um, analogy, if you're a Greek owner sitting on an island uh, somewhere, uh, sipping to your uh, drink, you don't really want to have 10 people uh, working on your ESG report. Um, so, so uh, but but if you join a pool, you know, all this will be taken care of. So, so but the, the challenge with some of the pools is that their motivation is not, or it doesn't seem like it's always uh, the uh, kind of return of the owner that's participating in the pool, because the pool is by nature transactional. The pool's income is generated from fishes. So, so they take a fixed fee per day for managing the ship, and then they take a percentage every time uh, the fixture is concluded. And uh, the percentage is obviously uh, then exposed to uh, the freight market. So, so the, the, the higher uh, the freight market, the better uh, kind of the, the, the shorter acts on behalf of the pool, um, your uh, income increases. A bit like the broker as well. The broker should actually be motivated to, to do the best deal possible for the owner. But what we've seen is that some of these pools become so large and uh, they don't really apply the commercial power uh, basically for utilization and for the tr transactional fee. So, so, so we've seen that although there are big pools in the market and they're probably going to grow, not all of them are probably best in class as to protecting the owner who's put his ship in their hands. Um, but anyway, it's uh, back to, to, uh, back to um, uh, you know, Building bigger units, yes, but again, uh, history has shown us that uh, the fragmentation in the tanker market is really difficult to get around. Um, particularly not now, you know, where where you know tanker assets should be really cheap because the market is so poor. There, there's actually a, normally a great correlation between spot markets and and the value of an uh, asset. Uh, that correlation is a bit off now, and it's. I think it's more due to the fact that some of these fragment, you know, fragmenting owners or whatever it's called, they have assets in all the various asset classes. So they've actually been making a bundle either in LNG or containers or dry bulk, and they don't really care too much about their uh, dormant asset in the tanker industry that's just uh, paddling around the world, losing a little bit uh, here and there. So, so, so they're not really incentivized to, to, to do anything. So that, that's at least the, the, the feel we have in the market. So, but as I always say, you know, frontline, we, we, we are in a great financial position to, to, to move when we need to move or we want to move. Uh, but, uh, and we're always looking, uh, but it's, it's, it's tough. Just a couple of quick questions left, Larsa. I know we are heading, running out of time, but you touched upon the reputation. And the reason why I just wanted to ask that question is because I guess reputation is built over time, right? So obviously it's not a short answer to why Frontline has a great reputation and also maybe investors value the stock a bit more compared to others, but maybe it's easier to just explain the 
sort of investor or investment philosophy that Frontline tries to give, right? Because you touched upon it earlier in our conversation that Frontline has a specific philosophy that should be tailored for the investors on their behalf, right? Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, the shipping companies, uh, listed shipping companies have, um, you know, a, a kind of, they have a various degree of, of reputation or, you know, it's, it's, it's not always, um, you know, to an outside investor, it's, uh, it's not always transparent. Uh, the business model is not always transparent. And, um, uh, you know, it tends to be, you know, if you go on Wall Street and say you're representing a tanker owner, uh, you know, the first question the investor will ask, well, well, where are you screwing me? Pardon my French. And, and you know, where are your hidden fees? So, so, so that's been a challenge to, to the tanker industry and, and kind of basically made uh, some investors hesitant to, 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 go, to go into the companies. The thing is that for all the companies where you know, we share the same big shareholder, um, transparency is, is really important. And, and it's, it's basically, you know, I, I was thinking about that and, and uh, you know, this is something that's rarely communicated well, but if you look at, the common kind of red uh, thread, uh, which is probably a Norwegian expression, uh, uh, the common theme amongst the companies that uh, where, where we share the same kind of major shareholder is actually as, as follows. And this is from an old presentation uh, that, um, that uh, was given many, many years back. And it's, uh, it's basically, you know, it's, uh, it's, Keep it simple and focused. Lean and efficient management teams. Define where you are, where we are in this cycle. Consolidation and economy of scale works. Build credibility with customers, investors, and financiers. Think and like uh, and act like an investor. And this is all the management in the various companies' guidelines. So this is kind of. You know, this is the DNA of uh, Frontline, Gold Notion, Flex LNG, Avance, SFL Corp. So, and the investors seem to appreciate that. So, you know, at Frontline, we're, we're blessed with uh, relatively high liquidity in our stock. Uh, we have a brand name on, on the street. Um, you know, when, when an investor uh, or a trader uh, in the equity markets uh, kind of uh, read in somewhere that, uh, you know, this is going to benefit the tank market, he puts FRO into his Bloomberg terminal because they know about Frontline, right? Um, if you look at what's happened to, to one of my good kind of uh, colleagues, Oistan uh, Kalaklev on Flex, you know, look at the development in liquidity in that share over the last uh, kind of six, seven months. It's, it's just insane, you know, you know from being a US listed company with very few shares traded. Now the volume in the US is, is larger than in Oslo at times. So it's, uh, or maybe even higher, I haven't looked uh, lately. Um, and it's, it's basically to build credibility with your investors. And I think it's also very important for a tanker owner, and this obviously goes for Frontline as well, is that when you have a dominant shareholder, he will from time to time um, move into a position to buy assets when the listed companies can't, basically due to their financial situation. I think this is a good example from Gold Notion. At some point then, 
this dominant shareholder, he does it not for purely for his own profit. He, he does it because he thinks that will benefit the listed vehicle, uh, you know, down the line. So when you look at Gold Notion, which last year kind of bought out, uh, I believe it was 18 ships from, from uh, our main shareholders, uh, kind of private uh, uh, company, it was done at a fair market price, very transparent uh, transaction, uh, no hidden fees, no nothing. It was basically a fair market price, which even some analysts said it was on the cheap side. And you rarely see that in uh, the world of the listed tank owners. So, so, so this is kind of the key to, 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 uh, to how we build credibility with investors. Um, you know, kind of the, the efficiency and uh, low cost is, is always, um, you know, a theme um, on, on forefront line and, and are, are kind of uh, the other companies in the sphere. Uh, but not, you know, if you look at OPEX, for instance, you know, uh, kind of we share the same technical uh, management platform. So, so the, the platform that manages the 75, 76 ships frontline owns um, also manages the ships that Gold Notion and Flex and Avance runs. And this gives through true synergies. Uh, so, so basically, we have a huge um, knowledge base to pull on with a relatively small organization. The, the, the technical management itself per ship is outsourced. But you have what you call fleet managers that are in-house, and they're overseeing the work that the technical managers are doing. And also then benchmarking the work they're doing. And it's not like we're going to save costs for any price, but, but you know, by doing that, uh, we, we at least have a mark-to-market on our cost because we have different technical managers running the ships uh, and they're overseen by the fleet managers. So you'll find on OPEX that you know, Frontline is outperforming most of our peers by 10 to 20%. So that's not where the big kind of savings is. But if you look at on GNA, since we're a small management team, we don't have a stock of, you know, kind of the amount of people running the fleet, uh, it would be surprised many how, how a few kind of heads we are actually. So small focus management teams, which gives really manageable GNA costs. And then by building credibility with investors, but also financiers, we do access favorable terms on finance. So, and that's where the biggest kind of hit comes or the biggest boost comes to Frontline is our very low financial cost. You know, the, the, the fact that a ship owner can put, place finance below uh, 200 basis points for, for, <laughs> for long-term financing of, of a vessel, for tanker, non-sustainable, uh, I might say, it is pretty incredible. And this gives us a huge advantage and, and makes, you know, this is why Frontline has what we like to say the lowest cash break even levels kind of as far as we can understand in, in, in the, amongst our peers. And it also gives or puts Frontline in position to when the market turns very, very quickly return equity to our shareholders. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll you know, at the end, you know, kind of, we're coming to the end here. And I think this is probably one of the most important parts for Frontline 
and, and for investors in Frontline is that when you invest in Frontline, you're not only buying a stock kind of per se, you are that, but you're also investing together with our major shareholder. You're basically partaking in his bet. And he is just as interested as uh, the, the, the normal investor on return on equity, dividends, and, you know, so, so basically you're, you're joining him in a trade. And uh, kind of when we get into position to, to pay our dividends, and, you know, we paid out $6.2 billion in dividends uh, over the years. And we're going to continue to do so when we have the opportunity to do so. And um, um, it's uh, so. So you, 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 as an investor, you, you, you should feel safe that you are <laughs> you're joining an investment with probably one of the most scrutinizing investors, uh, you know, on the planet, as far as I can understand. And I or I know. Um, so, so, so that's kind of. And uh, the 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 other thing as well is that you. If you're interested in no volatility, a safe heaven, and you know a steady uh, kind of returning stock, um, low risk and so forth, and low beta, low volatility, whatnot, then you shouldn't really, you know, frontline should probably not be your core investment. Uh, but this is just by nature, you know, kind of the proposition we, what we offer investors is uh, more or less direct investment into an extremely cyclical industry being the tech market. So, so that's our proposition to the investor. And we're going to pay you, you know, back for making that investment. But of course, you know, since we're exposed to one of the most volatile markets in the world, the investment will be volatile too, but hopefully extremely rewarding. And it has been in the past. That's a perfect ending, Lars. It was so much fun having you on. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. If you liked this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.